3: Hello, it's Alec Baldwin. We're going to rebroadcast an episode from our archives. This week, we have a show recorded live in Vermont with Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield, who you know, of course, as Ben and Jerry. They've gotten a lot of my business over the last many years. We'll have new episodes of Here's the Thing beginning March 15th. Until then, enjoy my talk with Ben and Jerry. I'm Alec Baldwin. And you're listening to Here's the Thing. 2018 marks the 40th anniversary of the first Ben and Jerry's scoop shop in a converted Vermont gas station. Back then, it was just Ben Cohen, the rootless art teacher, and Jerry Greenfield, the diligent pre-med, who were friends from middle school gym class. They figured they'd move on from ice cream in a few years when it became boring or unprofitable. But of course, history had other things to say. Today, you'd be forgiven for thinking of Ben and Jerry as more milk and cream than flesh and blood. But it was the real people behind the pints that emerged when the two joined me for a rare joint interview last month. Our conversation was taped in front of a live audience at the Flynn Center for the Performing Arts in Burlington just a couple of miles from the site where Cohen and Greenfield set up shop in 1978. Please help me welcome Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. I knew I should have gone into the ice cream business. Look at that applause you got. Look at that. You know, looking at your story and seeing your lives before you became these huge successes, you've been in in each other's lives for a long, long time. You know, both of you grew up in Brooklyn, and then you met in Merrick, Long Island, where you met in school. Why
4: have you stayed so close to him? And then you go. I've just never run into a better friend to spend my life with uh you know he's kind of smart uh he's funny uh he has a real he has very strange eating habits and uh such as well you know the earliest memories actually i have of his eating habits is he was once attempting to survive on these one calorie candies that his mom (laughs) I guess packed for him in his little sandwich bag for school lunch, <laughs> and, uh, and we were in gym class together and he keeled over, he fainted, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was some kind of strange seizure, liquid, oh, a liquid yeah. came out yeah. of some facial orifice. And, the coach covered it up with a gym mat so that he could show it to the nurse when the nurse came by. In the movie version of your life, I'm going to have that kid run up and go, Jerry, are you okay?
3: And he's like, yeah. What's your name? <laughs> and you're like, Ben, my name is Ben. Thanks, buddy. And that's where we all was born, there. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. And you bent and down then, and got the... You know, the second food memory I have of <laughs> Jerry is... Uh, when he was surviving on what he called slop which was he would mix together cream of wheat and cream of mushroom soup (laughs) and he kept it around in this uh jar that he kept in his car and he would kind of drink out of it and for the record okay okay, Uh, okay. (laughs) thank
2: god Ben created all the flavors. So uh...
3: <laughs> now was a slop something that was consumed over the
2: course of a day, a week? I I uh I was trying to be healthy, and so I was uh <laughs> uh-huh. I have I have no trouble eating the same food over and over day after day. I mean that's just sort of I,
4: He does not live to eat. Well No imagination. I mean, he does eat a lot, but uh he he doesn't care what he eats. Let's talk about Ben for a minute, <laughs> shall <we? laughs>
2: now, you love Ben. Tell I us why ben. you love Ben. I love so uh we we met first of all because we were both fat kids in junior high school and you know uh we were not exactly in the mainstream of, uh, social activities. We were both kind of nerdy kids. And, uh, so we, we hung out together a lot and, uh, we remained nerdy kids. So I, th- I think that was, that was a Mushroom mid-month. soup and cream of, cream of wheat qualifies
3: yeah. you, I think. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, you know, plus we, we always did like to eat together. I mean, uh, we would have food together and, uh, Ben, Ben was the first person who talked to me about, taught me about uh, uh, wet crunch and dry crunch. Ben's really into textures
4: right. in foods. <laughs> uh, no, but well, we also you used to talk a lot about eating through the pain.
3: <laughs> right, okay. I mean, so food
4: was a big glue in your relationship? Very much.
3: Right, and, and, and when you say what's in the ice cream is his hemisphere and what's yours?
2: Uh, Well, I used to make it, but, uh, you know, what's one of the interesting things, you know, so you think of Ben and Jerry's, you think of all these incredible flavors, and so people assume that Ben made some of the flavors, and Jerry made some of the flavors. Jerry, what were your flavors? And it's kind of a long pause at that point. (laughs) Slop. We had slop on the menu for a
3: while.
2: So you're the business end? No, no, neither one of us. (laughs) (laughs) No, so, you know, Ben... You roll a really good joint. I mean, what are you saying? What
4: are you... Uh, it's legal here, you know. Yeah. Why do you think we're recording up here?
2: Ben came up with the flavors. I would make the ice cream. We started with this little shop right here in Burlington. Uh, and, and for those people who remember, 40 years ago, uh, about two weeks after we opened up, we closed the store because we couldn't figure out if we were making any money to stay in business. Right. And we put up a little sign on the door that said closed. And uh, we had an accountant who walked in the door and said, Hey, I can help you. <laughs> and so that saved
3: that first shop. Yeah. But I want to go back before that because in your lives, there's a lot of uh, you're going to go to college, to medical school.
2: That's you know, you conceptually that. right. Yes. You were <laughs>
3: I'll take it. Um, and, and you wanted to become a scholar, but you were into pottery. Pottery. And then you end up teaching pottery. Where again was it? Those who can't do, you know. Well, uh, well I'm letting <laughs> you to say that. You that Those was, who can't do was, make a lot uh, of money selling ice cream. <laughs> but but, but you,
4: you were, you were, where did you end up teaching? That was in the, in the Adirondacks in a town called uh, Paradox at the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at the Highland Community School for uh, Disturbed Teenagers.
3: But there's one section there, I think, where you guys are not in the same city and you're not around each other for, for, for a few years, correct?
2: When, when we decided that we were going to make ice cream together, we were not uh, in the same place. And you, were, and you were not in the same place for how long? Oh, it was years, but we made a vow. So we decided we were going to learn how to make ice cream. Right. And so we pledged to each other that we were going to start making test batches of ice cream wherever it was we were living and report the results back and whatever. And but, but I asked that. I never made any. But, but, right. <laughs> <laughs> we also made a vow I think we that knew we that, were... that, Jerry. <laughs> um, I think we're clear on that. It should have been Ben. Ben was the guy who stopped doing his homework, uh, what, in junior high school. I mean, I was the guy. I finished all my homework. I should have been making the ice cream. Right.
3: But I only mentioned that five-year gap because it's back in the time where there are no cell phones and there is no internet. So, maintaining that friendship, I mean, your friendship is, is integral to this whole we thing. We wrote letters. That's what I was going to ask.
4: <laughs> Did you? Well, we had a chain letter that we wrote to a group of friends. And, you know, each person would uh, enter the, their comments and then send the letter around to the next person. And, you know, it just kept on circulating like that. So, you stayed in touch all that time? I yes. guess so. Yeah,
5: yeah.
4: We, didn't, <laughs> we didn't lose touch. And what
3: what was the what facilitated you getting back here and opening that first place in Burlington uh, in the former gas station that you opened up in?
4: Well, I failed at being a potter. Uh, No, (laughs) nobody would buy my pottery. And uh, he failed at being a doctor. He couldn't get Uh, into medical school. (laughs) Uh, So we figured uh, we're not getting anywhere in the world, and. maybe we should start our own business. Did you know what kind of business? were you? Did food. You say, right, I mean, that's interesting. You didn't decide to go
3: into, like, you know, the camping gear business.
4: Right. It had to you be know. food. And uh, we were originally going to open a restaurant. We had one friend who knew something about business. He said, whatever you do, don't open a full-service restaurant. If it's got to be food, open a very limited menu kind of place. And we wanted to uh live in a rural college town so the idea was to take a a food trend that was just starting off in the big cities take it to a rural college town and uh the food trends that were happening was bagels or ice cream and uh we thought we would do bagels and then, you, could, <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't make bagels either, could you? That's kind of like sculpting,
3: isn't it? That's kind of like pottery.
4: You gotta shape it, you throw it right. into a kiln. Right, right, right. It's a little more forgiving than pottery, yeah. but uh, you effed up the pottery and the bagels, apparently. <laughs> yeah. I was actually a baker's helper once, and I got fired. But when uh, <laughs> yeah. you were signed on to that, you liked
3: the idea of a food business.
2: Yeah, because... We didn't know anything about anything. We knew we liked to eat. And uh, I mean, you know, when you say a food business, uh, we weren't really thinking about a business. For us, it was kind of a venture, open up a shop, and we thought we would do that for a couple of years, and then we thought we would try something else. You know, we, we talked about becoming cross-country truck drivers together after that. So, you know, it's not Thank like Thank we... God for all our sakes, you didn't do that. <laughs>
3: We'll be back after this.
1: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington.
3: You, you, you opened the first store in Burlington when?
4: 78? 78, yep. 70, and, and And what was ice cream in America then? Well, ice cream in Burlington was, uh, you had the UVM Dairy Bar. And, <laughs> and you had uh, Seward's Ice Cream at the bus station in downtown Burlington. And... That was really the only... Wasn't that enough? <laughs> <laughs> well, the bus station was a pretty seedy place at the time. Uh, no. Uh, clearly and there not- was
2: Upton's, the pinball parlor.
4: Oh, Upton's. Right, right. They served uh, ice cream also.
3: <laughs> <laughs> now, for you to go back, when you were a child, what was ice cream in your childhood? Were you, were you an ice cream person?
2: Yeah. We always had ice cream in our freezer, and... We would get half gallons from the supermarket, and uh, it was just kind of a staple in our house. What kind? Breyers. Breyers. Same for you? Breyers. Well, when I was a
3: kid, because you talk about the, 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 the beginning of the era of the super premium ice cream, people spending more money for better quality ice cream, but when I was a kid, you went to Howard Johnson's on the highway in Massapeak, where I was from, and they scooped ice cream, which was pretty good ice cream. There was Carvel... Uh, you bought briers by the container and took briers home from the supermarket where you had the vendors in trucks like Mr. Softy and Good Humor was the big one on uh, when I could be at trucks, you know, patrolling the neighborhood when I was a kid. And then we get into the era of, you know, Fruzengladja and uh, Haagen-Dazs and so forth. When you started making ice cream, did you say to yourself,
4: this is who we are? to we, make." We just wanted to make the best ice cream we possibly could. And our model was uh, Steve's ice cream in uh, Somerville, Mass. Uh, What
3: made a good ice cream? He
4: he was one of the first homemade ice cream parlors on the East Coast. He was making uh, ice cream in a five-gallon rock, salt, and ice freezer in the window. And, uh, you know, people were lined up around the block. (laughs) There was a... uh, there was a player piano on the line uh, that you could, you know, put a quarter in and make the player piano play. And, and it was great ice cream. He was doing mix-ins, uh, you know, so you'd get a scoop of ice cream, you know, vanilla, chocolate, coffee. You say, I want a scoop of ice cream, and I want Heath bars mixed in. Like Cold Stone. And they would, right, right. They were the Cold Stone forerunner.
3: So in the beginning, what kind of uh, menu did you have? Was it basic flavors? Or were you throwing, you know, uh, uh, you know spare parts in there from the beginning?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we started with vanilla. We started with chocolate. We started with coffee. You know, the real basics. Uh, we, uh, ben had not yet flourished as an ice cream <laughs> creator.
4: I think uh, one of the first flavors we came out with that was a real knockout as far as we were concerned was cantaloupe we we made i mean it was great ice cream. i don't, don't see I, that on
3: the menu anymore though no, what happened no, to
4: no you don't i mean the reason why you don't see it on the menu anymore is in order to make cantaloupe ice cream you need overripe cantaloupes and uh you know the produce wholesalers in town really liked us because, you know, we'd call up and we'd say, hey, do you got any overripe cantaloupes? And they just couldn't wait to get rid of the overripe cantaloupes. And Jerry would be scooping out, uh, you know, the stuff that wasn't rotten and, (laughs) uh, you know, mushing up the overripe... I absolutely avoided the stuff that was rotten. (laughs) I did not use that. And, you know, and it was great. I mean, it it tasted just like a cantaloupe, except it was creamy and frozen and uh but the problem is you can't do it in large quantities because not everybody would be there like jerry you know scooping it out you, you know it's very much a hand operation so you come up with the flavors and you're like jerry cut and scoop those 500 candles, <laughs> Jerry, well I'm no not, not, not that a with the camera whole... it, it was more like that way with the heath bars uh you know at the beginning we were buying Heath Bars that were individually wrapped. <laughs> and uh, Jerry would line them, unwrap oh, them, genius and, and line them up on a cutting board. And we had this big two-handled knife, uh, and he would cut them, what, how many ways? Which Into which way? thirds. Into thirds. And then the other way? Well, it was just thirds. Uh so we were doing this and uh it was our most popular flavor and you know he was doing it a lot. And uh <laughs> and then you know we hired uh our first guy who knew something about business and uh who is Chico Lager, by the way. He uh he uh what, what's he his name? Chico Lager. Lager like beer? Lager like beer. He his owned name is Chico Lager? Chico Lager.
3: Wow, that's the fakest name I've ever heard in my life. Uh, he owned a bar. Uh, is his real name like Andy Horowitz? Is he like Ben Cohen, Jerry Greenfield? And if it wants to have one guy with a different name, Chico
4: Lager. Chico Lager. And, uh, what did he, he offer you? He called up the Heath Bar Company and said, you know, we're using all these Heath Bars. Can't we buy them unwrapped? And they said, huh, uh, you know, we have boxes and boxes full of all these factory second Heath Bars that, you know, there's something slightly wrong with and we didn't wrap them. You want those? And he said, yeah, I'll take them. And, you know, it was a great deal uh, in terms of money. And you know, this guy, you know, he's an MBA. You know, he does his calculations and figures out the cost of money and the interest and all this kind of crap and <laughs> ends up ordering, like, a ton of Heath bars, and he's got them piled up in the office behind his chair. And uh, so we had to store them in the freezer so that they didn't, you know, melt or go bad or whatever. We had them stored on the top rack in the pallets in in this walk-in freezer and one day somebody went to get the pallet down and he dropped them on the floor before jerry could cut them up and we (laughs) opened we opened up the box and they were broken exactly right (laughs) and and that became the new method of breaking up the heat bars.
3: so so for months after that jerry's in the freezer going step back chico watch (laughs) <laughs> right, tell them we're ready. Tell them we're ready. <laughs> Sweep them up. Let's go. So you open up in Burlington, and it's 78. And when do things start to fizz a little bit? When do you think you're on to something? What, what, what's the sign that you're on to something, other than you're scooping a lot it's of ice cream? It slowed
2: down a little before we started fizzing. <laughs> I <It> did. <laughs> yeah. Why? It turned into the winter from the summer. <laughs> <laughs> And that explains why there weren't really many other ice cream parlors here in Burlington yeah. at the
3: time. <laughs>
2: yeah. What did
3: your competitors do during the long winter? Did they close?
4: Well, you know, what Seward's, would they do? Seward's was selling a lot of uh, sandwiches and hot dogs. And you didn't and, want to do that? No, because that was the sign of an ice cream shop that was going out of business. They started <laughs> to sell all this other crap. What would you do? We started to sell all the crap. We, <laughs> we, we, were, we were selling... a discount on
3: Broken Heath bars.
4: <laughs> we were selling soups and crepes. Actually, you know, Jerry was in charge of the ice cream. I was in charge of all the other crap. Yeah. And we don't sell any of that anymore. And you decided.
3: <laughs> you were deciding what that would be. You were the decider of that as well?
2: I. Uh, Pretty
3: for much. I think we, was our we cook. I mean
2: we discussed it together. Well we came up with a great ice cream marketing promotion in the winter. It was called Popsid Biswe, which stood for Penny Off per Celsius Degree Below Zero Winter Extravaganza. <laughs> they all remember it. Everybody remembers that promotion <laughs> at Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> The colder it gets, the more you say. So it's a the,
3: miracle <laughs> that you're up here with me today talking about, <laughs> about your great success when you tell me that acronym.
2: What is it again? Popsid Biswe. Penny off per Celsius no, no, degree no, please don't below continue.
4: zero winter <laughs> <laughs> She had a screwy way of selling ice cream. Yeah, we have a TV commercial that had Popsid Biswee in it. It put up each letter one at a time. P-O-P-C-D-B-C-1. <laughs> Did you win some marketing award
3: from some (laughs) institution for that? But you would literally discount per the weather. And that's what saved you, you think? No.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, but but one of the great things that grew out of that. So that was our first winter. We were really struggling. uh, And Ben and I said to each other, boy, if we're still in business after a year, we'll celebrate by giving out free ice cream to everybody uh, because... We didn't think we were going to stay in business, and there was really not much there. Uh, but we were in business after a year, and that was our first free cone day, which still <laughs> takes place every year. It's around the first Tuesday in April. You can get in line as many times as you want at any Ben & Jerry shop.
3: And when do really things start? When do you look at each other and say, we got to take this to another level? We,
2: things started getting worse. Uh, And so we said, we're never going to make it with an ice cream shop. We need to find another way to bring in more money. And so we started selling ice cream to some local restaurants that had asked for it. Uh, Ben became our root salesman. Uh, He would go around selling ice cream. And then he was passing by all these mom and pop stores that he was going by delivering ice cream to restaurants and he thought we should package our ice cream into pint containers and he could sell it in there and that is what started the business going forward retail yep and there stores
3: yeah. and what year does that start to take off
2: 1981 i don't know we we don't remember right. this okay
3: okay. <laughs> okay but i'm just curious about when do you when, i mean right now it's a i mean let, let's not kid ourselves it's a huge company
4: Where did you go public? We went public first, just within the state of Vermont. Uh, The idea was to make the community the shareholders of the business. Uh, We had, you know, a bunch of venture capitalists that were approaching us saying they wanted to invest in the business. And we said, no, we don't want to do it that way. We want to use this need for cash as an opportunity to make the community the owners of the business how'd that work uh, it worked out great we sold out the offering it was the first ever in-state public stock offering and you know a lot of people bought stock and uh happily the stock went up a lot of people m- made a bunch of money people's kids went to college on bena stock well.
2: What was unique about that was there was a very low minimum purchase. It was $126. So it was not aimed at sophisticated investors. It was aimed at everybody. So the Vermont offering was in 84. 84. And then, then we had a public offering uh, nationally in 1985.
3: Right, in 85. And then you sell the company to Unilever in 2000.
2: The company got sold.
3: The company we, got sold. We, we you tried to board. keep it
4: independent. Right. You did. You did.
3: Now explain to people how that works. I Meaning, You have a board. And, uh, um, I mean, I just would assume a company named Ben and Jerry and Ben and Jerry are alive and I'm assuming that they're involved. They're calling the shots. How does a company get sold by your board if you don't want it to get sold to Unilever? How did that work out? I mean, in the end, you said that when things with Unilever are fine, it worked out well, but how did it get sold?
4: Uh, there was a CEO who was running the company at the time who, uh um, saw a way for him to make a bunch of money by selling the company. And, uh, and Unilever was courting him. They were courting each other, I think. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so Unilever ended up offering so much money for the stock, so much above what the price that it was trading at, that the board had no choice, uh, legally, but to recommend uh, the sale. The sale. Right. Do they have other ice cream? Popsicle, Briars, Klondike, uh Magnum, Magnum, Talenti, Talenti. Good humor. They're a very big ice cream.
3: They, they've that. got every shelf of the freezer case. If you like ice cream, you've probably already heard this one, but there's no better ice cream conversation in our archives than with Barbara
0: Streisand. I would have my pint of coffee ice cream, briers, and sit in my bed and dream. Go to the movies sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, the Lois Kings, where they had the greatest ice cream. And we also,
3: <laughs> well, yeah. No, was, you're, you're, you're like me. Somebody will say, What was the best part of the summer? I'd say, Well, this is this restaurant that has the mm-hmm. best coffee ice cream with chocolate covered hazelnuts in it. Mm-hmm. The rest of that interview and many more at here's the org. When we come back, the skinny on Ben and Jerry's roles at the company after it was bought out by Unilever and the real story behind Cherry Garcia.
1: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.
3: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more of my interview with the tycoons of Truffle Kerfuffle, Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. The company they founded was acquired by Dutch conglomerate Unilever in 2000. You're not involved. They run the company. You're you're not on the board. What's it like for you that your name is on it? Like, like, I wonder, is... You're still walking down the street and people are saying, I got a flavor for you. <laughs> and they still think you're
2: the pipeline, you're the conduit. Uh, for the record, we love it when people come up
4: and say, I've got a flavor for you. That, we want that. Right. Right. I was once at an event and these, these two women came up to me and they said, you know how You know, girlfriends are always bringing over a pint of Ben and Jerry's to their friend who just broke up with their boyfriend to kind of soothe them. Well, we think you should come out with a flavor that's in a pink container (laughs) called You Can Do Better Scotch. I keep on on telling the company, this is a winner. You should come out with this. (laughs) I mean, coffee, ice cream with a butterscotch ripple. I mean, this is an incredible flavor. Uh, They say, oh, we got a flavor department. Go back, Ben. Go go do whatever it is you do. (laughs) That's what they say. What can I say? It's one thing
3: to enter a business, because I have no business sense at all. I mean, I have zero business sense. You know, when people talk about ice cream, it's, uh, you know, a handful of flavors of what you're at the top of the pile. And I'm I'm uh, I want to congratulate you. <laughs> I mean, It's just amazing
4: to have done that, you know, to have built a business and been that successful. You know, we had a saying, Jerry and I, it's easy to make it lousy. It's hard to make it right it's really hard to shove that chocolate chip cookie dough into the pints of ice cream (laughs) so that each pint gets the right amount of chocolate chip cookie dough. You know, we used to slice open pint containers four ways into four sections to inspect uh, the number of chunks of cookie dough that ended up in each section. And then in complex flavors like uh, Heath Bar Crunch or New York Superfudge, not only were you counting the number of chunks of Heath Bar, but you were counting three different size variations that all had to appear right. I mean, it, it, there's a reason why nobody else was making ice cream like this. Because it, <laughs> it doesn't really go through the machinery that easily. You know, there's nothing easier to make than a homogeneous liquid or semi-liquid like mayonnaise. How many facilities do you
3: have around the country to make ice cream, You're like plants that manufacture the ice cream? Well, there's two here in Vermont.
4: There's one in Nevada. You think that's it? That's pretty and, and much they it. it. They,
3: they put it in a refrigerator, truck and truck it all around the country.
4: Yeah, in the country, out. and yeah. then there's uh, another plant in uh, the Netherlands. You yeah. Know? yeah. And that's about the whole thing, right? Ain't nothing else. Uh... We're, we're not this really. This is the part you're
2: supposed to know, Jerry,
4: okay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He makes the flavors, you count the money,
2: Jerry. What's going on? Well, I think this just goes to show that Ben and I are not really on top of things. <laughs> I mean. Uh...
0: <laughs>
3: now, w- when you license, uh, I'm assuming there's a licensing involved, what's the first signature
4: flavor you come up with? Uh? <laughs> the first one, uh, unusual one we came up with was Oreo Mint. Oreo Mint. And yeah. You got, and you got to cut a deal with Oreo. Well, we didn't. And, <laughs> uh, and, and then we got uh, a letter from uh, Nabisco, which owns Oreo. And they, but it was on
3: really nice stationery. It was. <laughs>
4: and they, they explained that uh, Oreo is their most valuable trademark and they will go to the ends of the earth to defend their trademark and under no circumstances could we call our ice cream Oreo mint. However, we could call it mint with Oreos. So we said, okay, and we changed the packaging and they were fine. And then, you know, about, uh, I don't know, five or eight years later, we got another letter from the legal department at Nabisco which began by saying Oreo is their most valuable trademark, (laughs) they will go to the ends of the earth to defend it, and under no circumstances could we pluralize their trademark. You may not call your ice cream mint with Oreos. You may call it mint with Oreo cookies. (laughs) So, you know, we changed the packaging again and didn't hear from them, until I started doing this online demonstration, demonstrating the size of the Pentagon budget in relationship to the education budget and the healthcare budget and the alternative energy budget, et cetera, using stacks of Oreo cookies. Each Oreo cookie would equal $10 billion. Yeah. So I'd come out with this, you know, huge stack representing the Pentagon. And then you had this, these little, little stacks. And research, yeah. And we got another letter from the legal department <laughs> of Oreos uh, saying, far be it from us to abridge your First Amendment rights of free speech, but we're getting a lot of complaints from our shareholders that the Nabisco company agrees with the point you're trying to make about the... Excessive Pentagon budget. Could you please? Refrain from doing that, you know, I felt that wasn't right, but it's their cookie company, right? It is their cookie company But you see these advertisements where they're talking about some competitor and they're calling the competitor by brand name and so I talked to a trademark lawyer and uh, I Said what's the story here? And they said you can use a competitor's name as long as there's no other product that will do to make the point you're trying to make. So I wrote him a letter back saying, look, I've researched every other chocolate sandwich cookie. And no other chocolate sandwich cookie has Oreos high quality standards and that in other chocolate sandwich cookies the amount of white stuff in the middle tends to vary from cookie yeah. to cookie. And I'm sure they can understand how in my demonstration, each cookie equaling $10 billion is <laughs> yeah. off by just a little. And I never heard from them
3: again. You can't take on the Pentagon using Hydrox cookies. <laughs> Come
4: on. Well, that's, that's
3: not going to work. So did you learn a profound lesson from your dealings with Nabisco? And you went on to do other flavor Cherry Garcia, obviously. When you did other uh, signature brands like that, did you get into more? Or did you get letters from a dear Mr. Cohen? The estate well, of Mr. Garcia would like to make it known to you.
4: <laughs> In regards to Cherry Garcia, it was a flavor that one of our fans came up with. They wrote us an anonymous postcard saying dead paraphernalia always sells. So, you know, it took me a long time, what, over a year, to come up with a flavor that was deserving of honoring this guy. What year? I don't remember years. Well, was, okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> was he alive when it happened? He was. Did, did, did he acknowledge what you did?
4: Well, his lawyer did. Okay. <laughs> You never met him. He never never was like... You know, uh, we sent him the first pint off the line. We overnighted it on dry ice. And his wife called up and said, you know, he can't have any right now because he's in the hospital in diabetic coma. But (laughs) I really like the flavor. And then a few months later... We got a call from his lawyer, whose name happens to be Hal Cant. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, you know, yeah, it's a really good flavor, but we think Jerry's entitled to a little piece of the action here. And we, we, gave, him a, we gave him a little piece of the they action. They made a
3: little deal. And, so,
4: and now his estate occasionally argues over who gets a the little
3: piece of the action. Right. But uh, you've been politically engaged your entire life?
2: Not so much. I, you know, I think it's uh, it's more after I moved to Vermont. Right. Uh, what happened when
3: you moved to Vermont?
2: Part of it was having gone to college. I, I went to college during the late 60s and early 70s. There were a lot of social movements going on at the time and, and soon thereafter I came to Vermont, which, uh, you know, it's just... A wonderfully community-oriented state. You can go talk to your legislators in Montpelier. I mean, it's, it's, it's very down home, uh, and there's a lot of grassroots activism here. And so I, I've become uh, very supportive of the Progressive Party in Vermont. There's a uh, there's a third party here in Vermont uh, And you know, plus, there's Bernie) uh, and there, there is, there is nobody like Bernie. Uh, ben and I were surrogates for Bernie in in the last presidential uh, uh, primary. Uh, and you know what's among the amazing things about Bernie, besides what he's been fighting for, for his whole political career, is that he is not for sale. And you do do not find people in the political world with that level of integrity.
3: (laughs) And what about you?
4: Junior high and high school, I wanted to go uh, down south with the Freedom Riders, and uh, my parents wouldn't let me. So, again, during that same period of time, I grew up on Long Island, my parents would every once in a while, I'd drive into New York City, and we would drive over the Triborough Bridge, and you get let off at 125th Street. And on one side of the street, there's dilapidated housing and people living in poverty, and on the other side, there's people living in wealth. And it didn't seem right to me. And that affected me quite a bit I think it was Desmond Tutu who said that uh, in situations of injustice, you cannot be neutral. If an elephant is standing on the tail of a mouse, you can say you're neutral, but the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. (laughs) When being confronted with injustice, you have, you know, you have three choices. You can either ignore it you can complain about it or you can do something about it but did you guys set up a charitable foundation for the company or do you guys have your own foundation that you funnel
3: money into from individually or from the company all of the above what's the mission what do you target you mostly income
2: disparity the arts what are you doing well so for for the ben and jerry's foundation uh it's social justice and grassroots organizing for that and and the interesting thing about the foundation at the company is that the final decisions about where the money goes is done by employees who volunteer their time to make those decisions, and uh, they are remarkable. They
4: do an incredible job. But I think what's important to understand is that uh, you know the major effect that Ben & Jerry's has, and the the major contribution that Ben & Jerry's has to society is not about the foundations it's not about uh donating money it's about integrating those social concerns into our day-to-day business activities and using the business's voice Uh, so
3: going back to the public sale in vermont
4: certainly that and and i'm also talking about Uh, speaking out on social and political issues.
3: And we're going to get to campaign finance reform and protest about, you know, all kinds of things that are worrisome in this country uh, that, that people have been led to believe it's ineffective. And it is not ineffective. If you see something wrong in this country, you need to scream as loud as you possibly can. You've got to protest. You've got to demonstrate. You've got to get active.
4: It's the patriotic thing to That's do. The
3: pa- they're there working for you. I'm in a room with congressmen and senators, and I'm looking. I'm looking up like you know. You're on the clock, buddy. Campaign finance reform. It is the linchpin of every problem. With <laughs> How'd you get involved with that issue?
4: I was working for a long time on shifting budget priorities from the Pentagon to social needs, and didn't get anywhere. I think a lot of that reason was because of so many defense contractor political donations. So that was one factor. And then I was, Jerry and I were both active in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Originally, it was laser focused on economic disparity, but as it started broadening and everybody who was protesting whatever came into that movement, the message started to get garbled. And I felt like it was important to focus. And the the common denominator between health care and issues of the environment and energy independence and Wall Street banks, the common denominator was money and politics. Yeah. That, uh, you know, all these corporations and high, high wealth individuals are paying Congress not to pass laws that protect people, but to pass laws that protect corporations. So... I got into working to get money out of politics. You see the tax cut to put more money
3: into the bank accounts of a class of people typically GOP supporters. Who uh, and if it's if it's a significant amount of money for these people, uh, you see where Kushner paid no taxes all these years, and uh, the Democrats. I, I want to win the midterms just because I want to see Trump's tax returns. You know they <laughs> announced they're going to get his get their hands on his tax returns, and. Uh, um, That'll be thrilling. (laughs) Okay, okay. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, we have some, I mean, we just have some mind-blowing questions from the audience. They're really just great questions. Someone actually wrote down, they wrote, vanilla or chocolate? No, 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 that, that wasn't a question. We went over some of the questions backstage to see which ones they have not been asked, you know, 50 billion times before. But I love this one, which is, what's, and, you, and, you, and you hold your answer. You, actually, you go first. You go first, because I know your answer. What's the longest you've ever gone without eating ice cream?
2: Uh, I have gone months without eating ice cream. Really? I would probably say two or three months. You've yeah. gone two or three months. Wow. And then what happens? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
3: And they find you in a pile on the yeah, ground in a, uh, a pool of tears?
2: I'm, I'm a feast or famine, kind of. I have a freezer at home that's got... A couple hundred pints in there? Several gallons. As so it should be. Yeah, because you never know when someone's going to drop exactly. by and is looking
3: exactly. for...
4: Uh, well, I mean, if I came to you know, your house I mean, and you didn't have any ice cream there, I would yeah, beat yeah. the crap out of yeah. you. <laughs> I mean, this guy says he's gone several months. All I know is that every once in a while he comes to me kind of sheepishly and says, "Uh, I ate two pints last night.
3: (laughs) We were very, very self-disclosing backstage
4: about our ice cream. I mean, I mean, what's the worst sound in the world? That spoon scraping the bottom That's of my face. <laughs> I, I didn't even prep him on that. We, I,
3: I told you, at the height of my ice cream addiction, I'd be sitting there, I was divorced, I'm living by myself, I'm miserable, and what's better medicine than a pint of ice cream? And I'd be sitting there watching CNN, and I'd be and like, you know, 9 o'clock, it's almost 10 o'clock, I mean, and all of a sudden i hear that scrape, and I'd be like, nah, how did that happen? <laughs> Wait a minute, I didn't eat that whole thing myself. That's not possible. So what's the longest you ever went without ice cream? A couple of weeks.
1: Well, maybe, maybe
3: one week. Maybe one week. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of, uh, speaking of uh, getting screwed, we, I really probably should come up with a question that's not unkind to Republicans. Applaud in this house if you're a Republican. If you're a Republican. Are there any Republicans
4: here? <laughs>
3: <laughs> Applaud if you're a Republican. We have yeah. four Republicans in this building. I love this town. I love this town. There's four Republicans here. What do we do if the Democrats don't take control? What are we going to do?
4: You know, I have a new life philosophy lower your expectations, but assume the best. It's a fine line. (laughs) and I'm assuming the best
3: I think we've already lowered our expectations as low
4: as they can possibly go okay Um, How, how do you learn to stick your lips out like that I mean do you do exercises
3: it's funny you say that. They came to me and they said, Do, uh, I was going to do a movie. And they said, Do you want to play Trump? Lauren called me. Lauren's my dear friend. He said, do You want to play Trump? I said, Are you out of your fucking mind? I don't want to play Trump. I said, Who the hell wants to do that? And I was going to go do a movie. Then the movie fell apart. And I called up Lauren. I go, All right, I'll come do Trump. He's like, And literally, the joke is he goes, It's three shows. <laughs> We're going to do three shows before the election, and then he's gone. And it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. So I'm like, all right what the hell i do it for three shows and then oh they and then um and i said to myself for the cold opening it's fast it's brassy we're firing the cannon it's in front of a live audience even though we're on tv it's it's like i want to make this in one sense as two-dimensional as the man himself is (laughs) and so i said to myself you have to raise your left eyebrow like this and then sometimes try to stick your mouth out as far as you can, like you're trying to suck the windshield out of a car.
4: <laughs>
3: and just make it completely stupid. I mean, make it silly and stupid because it's not, you know, if, if we did the really finely etched one, that's a uh, David Fincher movie, so we're not going to be doing that. Um, who do you think is the Democrat that can beat Donald Trump? Barney! <laughs> You guys are loyal, you too? You're Bernie. Boy, you guys are something else. (laughs) Now, I love this question. How do you feel Ben & Jerry's has shaped the culture of Vermont?
4: You know, I think before Ben & Jerry's, Vermont was pretty much known for maple syrup. Interestingly enough, I think after Ben & Jerry's, I think there started to be all these other specialty food companies, great cheese companies. The name Vermont came to stand for really high-quality specialty food products.
2: I think Vermont is, uh, is known as entrepreneurial, uh, partly as a result of Ben & Jerry's, I think, because of many things, including Bernie Sanders, Vermont is seen as progressive. Uh, and, and one of the remarkable things about Ben & Jerry's uh, is that even after it was sold to this giant multinational, and even after Ben and I have nothing to do with the company the company continues to be incredibly outspoken about really serious issues like it's publicly supported Black Lives Matter. It's publicly supported Mm. gay marriage. Mm. Uh, It's publicly supported Occupy Wall Street, which is essentially an anti-corporate thing. And uh, what's so wonderful about it is Ben and I have nothing to do with that. It's, It's the company itself and the values. It worked out
3: well. The sale
2: you know it's about the people you can say all you want about agreements and whatever it's about the people involved and and the people at the company are incredible um that's great
3: um, the last qu- question i have then a comment is is that uh, your wife is a psychologist yeah and did, did, did that play an important role in your success I just had this image of, like, you in bed with your wife, you're at the kitchen table. Like, Ben, you call Jerry. And
2: you tell him you're sorry. (laughs) I called
4: Ben this morning just to say hello. (laughs) And then he called me this afternoon to ask, what are you wearing tonight? (laughs) And I said, you know, I'm going to be wearing uh, a button-down shirt and uh, some jeans. And he said, oh, I was going to wear a jacket. And I said, no, we can just be ourselves. I mean, you know. And then I proceeded to get dressed up in my uh, button-down shirt and my jeans, and my my dear wife said, you're not going to go like that, are you? (laughs) So I said, okay, you want the jacket? And, and she said, yeah, that's a lot better. So I had to call Jerry up and say, no, I'm going to wear the jacket.
3: Well, let me just say that, you know, I think it's amazing to sit with the two of you who, A, are synonymous with a, with a product that people really enjoy and love. I mean, who doesn't love ice cream? And B your incredible friendship, I mean, learning about you in some more detail about what a great friendship you've had, but also what great citizens the two of you are and what you've done with this company. Incredible. Incredible. Let's hear it for Ben and Jerry. Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield. They invented cookie dough ice cream, Heath Bar Crunch, and many, many more. But one flavor they didn't invent is s'mores. That one comes to us from the fevered imagination of a man who might sound familiar to Here's the Thing listeners, our engineer, Zach McNeese, and his mother, Sandra. They submitted the idea of s'mores ice cream to Ben & Jerry's in 1991. Now, every year... Hundreds of coupons for free pints arrive in the mail from Vermont. Nobody asks. They just come. Ben and Jerry are men of their word in commerce as in friendship. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is a production of WNYC Studios, technical production by Zach S'mores McNeese. Thanks this week to Vermont Public Radio.